Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we are talking about the Gospels. This is Gospels part 97. Last week we saw where Jesus went into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and Pharisees were coming to him about the lawfulness of a man divorcing his wife. Uh, And Jesus had such a great response, uh, his discourse kind of showcasing how Jewish leadership has misinterpreted the intent of what divorce was uh, when it got written into the Torah, into the law. Uh, Jesus was trying to expose that that was not the intention from the beginning of creation, but it was God meeting humanity in their brokenness to try to prioritize mercy and life whenever there's mistreatment happening, but people in their brokenness have taken it to the extreme, and we saw those examples of where people were divorcing their wives for any good reason whatsoever that they thought. Uh, did you just burn the toast? I, I guess Get I out did. of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he goes on to say that he specifically says, like, committing adultery, but we... Um, I think we took time to say that that space can include any sort of physical or emotional mistreatment or abuse that the person's livelihood and well-being is at stake. Like, those are the, the exceptions, but, it, like, you should do whatever it takes to try to um, save that union because we saw the, of that Edzer Konegdo that marriage is this help that comes against, that showcases the fullness and the completeness of humanity between man and woman and how those two roles come together to benefit one another uh, to make them the best version of themselves. Yeah. Um, and then we ended with Jesus' disciples re- kind of rebuking him when children were coming to him, and <laughs> which is crazy. And Jesus was, again, reminding them that if you can't be like these children— um, in, t- in terms of being like a child, depending on the provision and all your necessities from God, uh, then you can't be a part of the kingdom. It's a really good reminder of how our disposition needs to be towards God. Yeah, so good. Yeah, I've, it's a bad thing. I, I, it was so hard for me to stay quiet. The whole time you were reviewing, I had a whole bunch of things I wanted to say. <laughs> But you know what? We did a whole episode on it. It's probably filled with decent stuff. Go listen to that. But let's go on. We've got, uh, well, uh, again, it's kind of like a kind of a, a quick change of topics, venues, whatever, L- little stories chained together. So we're going to be reading, boy, this is a big, big stuff. We've got Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22, and Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 23. I'm going to read from Mark, uh, but I also want to throw in just a little bit from Matthew because there's these slight differences that always kind of help fill things out. So here we go in Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, 
sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Whoa, there's so much in here and it's so good. But real quick though, I want to read from Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, because it's slightly different than the way Mark presented it. And it's kind of important. It helps us see a little something into the text. So it says this, uh, Matthew 19, 17. And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now, we're going to talk about all this stuff like in order as we go, but just to just to point out why am I reading that? Because this shows that not only you've got this guy thinking that Jesus is good or asking, you know, what good thing he might do or whatever, and Jesus is going, "Look, you're you're missing it. Goodness is not contained like it doesn't have its source in the commandments. It doesn't have its source even in Jesus. And this is so important to see. The source of goodness is in God alone. That's important point number one. And then from that, Jesus then turns to the commandments because what are they, Sam, uh, Samuel? I mean, they're, they're life, right? Yeah, they're like the representation of that goodness. They, they are here on earth. They're a way for us to see and know and understand the goodness of God. But remember, he is the source. It just, it's an important to see at the top of the story. But let's go ahead. Let, let's try and get our heads in the game. While they're on their journey, or who knows, maybe Jesus is starting. It kind of sounds more like he's starting the next leg of his journey or, you know, something like that. But anyway, a young man runs up to him. And this is important. He kneels before him and he calls him good teacher. And he just has this one simple question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Matthew, again, he's even more specific. He says, what good deed must I do? Now, just be fair with this guy when you're reading. This dude was serious. He was sincere. It was a real question seeking a real answer. He he wanted certainty. He wanted to know that he knew that he knew. However you say that, I lost my tense there. He wanted to be certain that he was going to attain it. And, and Jesus responds, we talked about it already a little. It, it's kind of this strange kind of sideways rebuke or something why are you calling me good? Only God is good. And I, you know, honestly, question, uh, Samuel, what's the question that's going to come up in everybody's head? If only God is good. I mean, Jesus is good too, because he's an extension of God. Right, right. But isn't Jesus God? And it's so important that we see this. First of all, this isn't Jesus denying his divinity. Some people are going to look at the text and they're going to say, see, he's not God. Take Jesus as well. Okay, that's not what he's doing. You shouldn't even, in some sense, we don't even really need to see this as a denial of his goodness, because obviously, if he is God and man, and if he has perfectly kept Torah his entire life, that's how we say that he is sinless, how can you not say that he's good? <laughs> but he's not the source of goodness. And this is yet another example of Jesus in his lifetime here on earth, in his walk here on the earth. He lives clearly in submission to the Father. And that's why it's so important to see that he is indeed walking in his humanity while he is here. It's not denying any of the other stuff, 
but it's also a really good motivation for us. We're only human, but we can do what he did, at least to some degree. We should go for it. Now, Jesus has, okay, every opportunity proclaimed submission, subjecting to the Father. In fact, I don't know, it's not even really a side rebuke at all when you take the whole thing in context, because it is, in fact, integral to integral to his answer to this young man. So to begin with, Samuel, me, you, anyway, a person must recognize that the only true source of goodness is God himself. It's available to all humans just as it was to Jesus. Again, because he's walking in his humanity. God, and then here's the other part we talked about, God has expressed his goodness in his Torah. So at least you understand why the young man was calling him good teacher, because, come on, the dude is, he's the walking Torah. How, it's like, in a way, you can tell that this young man totally gets it, at least up to a point. So then, and now here's where people get confused. Jesus gives him the direct answer. All right, you want, you want eternal life? That's what you're looking for? Well, here's your answer. Keep the commandments. Or, depending on your version, you know the commandments. And then he actually starts listing some of them. Now, it's a short list. It's not an exhaustive list. But just understand, by naming some of the ten, okay, we could look at them and go, well, he he named these specific ones. What does that tell us? Yeah, okay, it's kind of important to, to see some of that. But understand Jewish mentality, first century, by naming some of the ten, he's pointing to the whole ten. That was just a common method in that day. And by pointing to the whole ten, he's pointing to the entire Torah. So the answer to the young man's question is simply Torah. How do I get eternal life? Torah. Wait. Samuel, what's the original question again? Uh, what must I do to gain eternal life? Yeah, and the answer? Torah. Yes. Yes. It's so important that we see it. And who is saying it? Jesus. Jesus. Okay. Now, I've heard lots of teachers describe this poor young man as, you know, he's lost or he's confused or he's insincere, and I've heard Jesus' answer described as sarcasm. Oh, he's, he's only telling this young man what he wants to hear because he knows that he's, you know, he's all locked up in that Torah stuff, that law stuff, and he just doesn't understand. You know what? I'm just going to say this as clear as I can. That is rubbish. That is trash. I can't believe I've never heard people say that before. That's crazy that you have... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's terrible. This dude, this young man, he was sincere and Jesus was welcoming. How do I know that? Because when the guy says, you know, this horribly arrogant thing, I've kept all these from my youth. You've never heard that, Samuel? Maybe I'm just forgetting. This poor young man, people busting his chops. But when he says that, teacher, I've kept all these from my youth. The text says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm -hmm. And if that's not enough for you, Jesus offers him discipleship. Come be one of my disciples. How do I know that, Samuel? What's the text say? Um, oh, at the end of verse 21, after he tells him to go sell all that he has... It says, and come, follow me. And that's what he said to the 12 disciples. Exactly. He's offering him discipleship. Don't tell me that this young man's not sincere. Don't tell me that this young man isn't pursuing God with everything he's got. Jesus was pleased with what he saw. This young man, he's fervent. He's passionate about God. He's passionate about God's will. However, Jesus also sees the whole man. And he can see that this young man is actually hindered by a great hurdle. 
And so in what way does Jesus actually love him? It says Jesus loved him. How did he do that? He tells him the truth. He exposes the fact that this young man, despite all of the good things that we might infer about him, he didn't really have God in spot number one. He too, like so many others then, and come on, let's be fair, so many others now struggled with God versus mammon. And it could be wealth, it could be possessions, but it doesn't have to be only those things. It is, in in the general sense, it is anything and everything of this world. It could even be people, family, relationships. It could be, I don't know, hobbies or this or that. Anything. God needs to be number one. And all of these other things of the world, they are a formidable foe in the walk of a Christian. And it was necessary that this young man see it. That's how Jesus loved him. And Samuel, might he also be attempting to love all of us Mm -hmm. in a similar way? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> Let's put that down as a, as a, not a maybe, uh, for sure. How about that? <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it is necessary for all of us. But this young man, see, he was searching for more. And, and now this is going to relate a little bit to the culture of the first century. He's saying, look, I've kept the commandments. What more can I do? Maybe there's something even over and above Torah. I'm willing to do it. If you will just tell me, I'll do anything. I want to be sure. So Jesus honors his request. The real answer for this young man was to sell all of his possessions and give to the poor, which, by the way, that's contained in Torah. That Mm. is Torah. Now, Samuel, is this the answer for every single person who has great wealth and is a Christian. No, because people struggle with wealth in different capacities. Yeah, and some people don't struggle with wealth at all. How do I know this? We can look back at some of the the, the great forefathers. Uh, Abraham is a great example. He was so rich, but God loved him. In fact, he's the reason we all have what we all have. And you could name so many more. Look at Joseph's life, whatever. David, Solomon, all that. But this is the problem. This young man, his possessions in some way owned him rather than him owning his possessions. He didn't grasp that his wealth could and should be leveraged for alleviating others' suffering. And we just learned about this recently in the story of the shrewd manager. Again, it's not saying that all Christians everywhere must be poor and possessionless. Nobody's saying that. But this is what was necessary for this young man. And I'm going to suggest something else that not many people, I don't know if they would agree, whatever, they probably don't think about it. The story leaves us hanging. Now, it, it seems to imply that the young man would not enter eternal life. But it never really says that. All we know is that this young man was faced with a very difficult decision, a very difficult task, and the last we hear of him, he is sad, sorrowful, disheartened, he has great possessions, but we don't actually know what he did. Ultimately, okay, he walked away sad. He didn't take his opportunity to be a disciple right then and there, but we don't actually know what he did afterward. And I'm just going to say this. I bet you've done it. I bet you know people have done it. When they're faced with something difficult, hard, challenging, whatever it might be, their initial response is actually not very good. <laughs> it's pretty bad. Hmm. And and they might hurt other people. They might make other people angry. Their response, it's bad, but give them a little time. And it's amazing what you can see people do. And you never know, this young man may be just like that. I just want to throw that out there because 
it's just another one of those ways that people throw this poor guy under the bus, and I feel like I want to be his advocate. Mm. So there you go. I'm done. Yeah. It's really cool, though, that the the text leaves you in a cliffhanger like that. It almost feels intentional by the author to give space to be introspective with yourself as the reader or the listener of the story to yeah. put yourself in this character's shoes to to see what you would have done, whether it was wealth or whatever other thing in your life is competing for that top spot in your life where God should be sitting. And I especially like it in Mark's account because I know I've read things in the past where the Gospel of Mark contextually is meant to be given to like a Roman influenced Jewish audience and I know that like Jewish people who would have been more exposed to Roman culture would have been more apt to materialism and entertainment and all the things that the Roman Empire are offering for you know protection and this is what the empire can provide for you. And I mean, I know that Matthew uh, says it as well, but it, it's just cool that with that uh, frame of mind for Mark, that he could have been directly calling out these Roman believers to be like, you know, this is, I, I know what your context is struggling with. Like, how are you going to respond? Um, it's yeah. just really cool. It is. I also wanted to say uh, I really liked you bringing up Jesus's submission to his father in terms of authority, and I I wanted to bring it up because I wonder if that is why God still honors Jewish people like past, present, and future who are pursuing Torah, pursuing God they're hindered by you know that divine hardness uh that's in place where they can't recognize jesus as messiah until the end where all of israel is redeemed because in some ways these people who are jewish who are earnestly seeking the commandments they are tapping into that authority that jesus is mentioning right here like you it, it would be to me it would feel blasphemous to discredit that or deny that for those people because they're they're seeking that same source that Jesus is mentioning in these verses right here. Yeah, yeah, and you've brought up an interesting point and boy, I'm going to really stir some feathers or I don't know what I'm going to do, something. Stir the pot. What am I doing with feathers? I don't know. Mixed my metaphors. <laughs> anyway, you brought up this thing where okay, modern American Christianity and and this is going to be so hard to say. I know people are going to misunderstand me, but I'm going to say it anyway. We have this super, super heavy uh, dependence on you must believe in Jesus. And, and, and the, the way people say it, and I'm going to say the way they mean it, is that you actually have to, you know, recognize and acknowledge who this Jesus guy that walked on the earth is, and that's the only way for your salvation. And I, d- I would like you to consider that it's slightly different than that. Jesus is the only one who seemingly could and did accomplish salvation for us. So in that sense, he is definitely the only way. But it's, it's not our believing in him as in like the way we believe in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus that somehow magically does something for us. We've talked about this so much on the podcast. Believing in him is actually to hear and obey. It's to walk in not only faith, but faithfulness. So believing in Jesus, I mean, if you've been listening to our podcast all along, or if you haven't, you should go back and hear some more. In the end, believing in Jesus really is down to, hey, I am going to walk in Torah the way that he did, at least to the extent that it applies to me. That can be tricky. We will talk about that more someday, but that's the thing. So 
what you're talking about, Samuel, this idea that, look, these guys, they were going after it with everything they had. How did you, How do you think Abraham is saved? How do you mm. think Joseph or David or any anybody else is saved? It's not because they believed in Jesus. He wasn't even there yet. But they did the exact same thing. We have a faith, a faith like Abraham's. That's how we're grafted in, Gentiles. Jews have a faith, a faith like Abraham's. And all that means is they are acting like Jesus, following in Jesus' footsteps, even though they may have preceded him in, you know, human earth time, whatever. It's a, oh, it's such a hard topic. But all that to say, Samuel, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I just, I've, it's funny you mentioned about hearing other people or having conversations about their misinterpretation of this section. I've had conversations with people who, concerning this subject with like Jewish people or those that aren't tangibly or audibly professing Jesus as Savior, use verses like in the Gospels when Jesus says, no one can come to the Father except through me. And they 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 retort with that. But I respond in saying that, well, isn't Jesus the Torah realized? And those who are pursuing Torah are pursuing him to a degree. It's just... Yeah like realizing who Jesus is fully and truly is just a, like an added benefit of richness to be able to see God's story. Like it's just Jewish people who are pursuing Torah now are just missing out on the extra goodness that Jesus is offering now on this side of the kingdom. Yeah. 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 Through him is not through, oh, I love Jesus. I mean, that's great and everything, but it's, through Jesus. He accomplished it. That is that is our pathway. That is... Remember how, Samuel, when uh, they messed up in the Garden of Eden and God put up the, the angels with the flaming sword and mm-hmm. all of that, and he, he blocked the way? Mm-hmm. Jesus is the way. He's our return back to relationship with God, and not just relationship, but like literally dwelling together. Mm-hmm. in creation. It's it's through Jesus. He opened that way through his life. And so, yeah, anyway. Yeah. And yeah. Final thing I just wanted to say, uh, it's, it may sound controversial, but may we all have the stance that this guy had in this story who is searching for more, like as we as followers are continuing to pursue God, pursue the commandments, pursue God's instruction like may we continue to ask the same thing that he was asking Jesus like what more can I do like yes. is there something more and above God, you know God's commandments what Jesus says in the gospels that I can be doing like that's such a great disposition and it's I mean it it shows itself in Jesus offering discipleship to this guy yeah. And it's amazing that that is offered so late in the story in in Jesus's ministry. Like, yeah, I don't think that gets talked enough. That, that well, we're getting down to the end here, and Jesus just offered a guy discipleship. Like, that's yeah. crazy. Like, just to theorize, like this guy could have been with the others at his death and crucifixion. Like, that's that's wild. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, at least we know that much. He didn't didn't come back and do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'd have heard about that, but yeah, yeah, it is, and and that's the, you're you're right, Samuel. Every day, if we looked at our lives, God, how can I better image you today? That's, I mean, that is the Christian walk. It's great. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's see where he goes from here. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 19, verses 23 to 26, Mark chapter 10, verses 23 to 27. And Luke chapter 18, 24 to 27. Again, I'm going to read from Mark. I don't know why. I seem to have this weird affinity for Mark. Can't explain it because I would never have guessed that about myself. But here we go. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Now, quick little side note, back in verse 24, depending on your translation, you may have had a little bit extra thrown in there. I read it as, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Yours may say something more like, children, how difficult it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Which, I mean, you know, the the most reliable manuscripts don't have it, and yet... I don't know. Seems like a pretty good addition. Seems to fit with the context and the message, whatever. But just know that that little bit, for those who trust in riches, eh, it's a, one of those contested bits of, of text, whatever. But what, uh, that, oh my gosh, Samuel, this is so good. What do we got going on here? So the disciples, they've obviously heard this conversation with this rich young man. And so the, the, the young man walks away sad, and Jesus uses this moment now to teach his disciples something. Wealth, riches, uh, whatever, mammon, things of this world, however you want to do it, they can be a great stumbling block to the kingdom. Now, to be fair, in context, he does seem to be focusing on wealth and riches, so we're going to do that. And actually, Samuel, I want you to read a couple things, because it isn't like Jesus is making up something new. So go back. Let's look at Job. Well, okay. I've pulled out some bits from Job chapter 31, verses 24 through 28. If you're listening, you can go read the whole thing. But Samuel, just read the bit that I've got pulled out there. Mm-hmm. If I have made gold my trust or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant or because my hand had found much, This also would be an iniquity to be punished by the judges, for I would have been false to God above. Okay. Now, again, I ripped a little bit out of the center, but it's just more things that somebody shouldn't do. These just were the ones that happened to go with, you know, wealth or whatever. But does that not sound exactly like what we're Mm -hmm. talking about here? Yep. It's it. So how about this? Here's another one. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 28. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Yeah. So notice a couple of things. Both of these are talking about putting your trust in riches. And that's just a, it's another way of saying you're elevating it above God. God isn't in that number one spot. But also, I always love how Proverbs does this. It, it contrasts two things together. Mm-hmm. And so many times they, it's like, they don't even seem like they have anything to do with each other. But in this one, it's trusting in riches versus righteousness. So, so there is this, this contrasting, somehow the opposite of trusting in riches is righteousness. And the opposite of righteousness is trusting instead in riches. It's just an amazing picture. I love stuff like that. But anyway, here's the thing. I, I mean, I tried to read it in a way that you would pick up on this. The disciples, man, they're shocked. <laughs> Jesus just said it's hard for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven, and they're shocked. Why? Well, they, they knew the scriptures. I mean, I bet you that if we read Job out loud or Proverbs out loud, they'd be like, yeah, 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 I know that. They might even be able to... Uh, do it from memory. Who knows? I don't know. But again, we got to look back to that first century culture. And I know this is going to sound weird, especially when we're sitting here reading the scriptures that are clear, but there was this, this sort of overriding belief that people who were rich were rich. They, they were only rich because they were being blessed by God. And then sort of the logical conclusion, if they were blessed by God, well, 
then they must be righteous. And, and it kind of makes sense. And, and plus, if you're rich, think about your life compared to the poor person. The poor person is spending their, their day doing the mundane things just to, like, eat and keep dry or, you know, warm, whatever. But rich people, well, I mean, they could do charity that it would be harder for the poor people to do. Uh, they could take more time to study Torah. It would be harder for poorer people to do whatever. So there was this underlying belief. If you were rich, wow, God must have been blessing you for a reason. And that's also kind of weird because, Samuel, who did they hate a lot? Tax collectors. Mm. And what were tax collectors? Oh, most of the time they were rich because they were taking stuff on the side. Exactly. So it's a weird thing that they're they're in this this weird sort of cycle of of belief or understanding. But whatever, it, it was a real thing. You read writings from that era. This is it's a real thing. So poor people, obviously, they looked at them. Okay, they weren't blessed by God because it's assumed if you're not being blessed by God, you're not righteous. Whatever. Now. Don't take all of this too literally, but this was a very general kind of belief. Now, in hindsight, to us, it seems completely ridiculous. And it definitely defied scriptures. I mean, we only read two. They're not the only two. But somehow it was a thing. So if you had a rich man, there was sort of this automatic assumption that he was a righteous man. Not true and even weird. But I'm sorry, it was there. And so, therefore, that's why the disciples seem shocked. Oh, and by the way, this guy, remember, he wasn't just rich. He also had kept Torah from his youth. They heard that part, too. So, even if they weren't stuck only on the fact that he was rich, they they may have known this man. They may have known about this man, or they just took him at his word. He was living according to Torah. So there's another way. It's completely shocking. But Jesus doubles down, and he says, look, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, and Mark's version, it's even kind of leaving the rich part out. Jesus just says, you know what? It's just hard to enter the kingdom. And I actually like that version because I think it helps to connect to us so much easier because not not all of us are rich, are we, Samuel? <laughs> no. So he gives them a mental image so that they can see just how hard it is. And so the, the image is this. Picture a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, number one, for those of you who don't know, yes, in Jesus's day, they had needles. Now, now, <laughs> Some would suggest that they even had things that were, like, very much the same size of what we have today. Others say, well, I mean, they definitely were small, smaller than you may think and imagine today, but, you know, not quite as small as some of the stuff we have today. But, okay, but the point is, it doesn't matter. It was a needle, it was small, and it had an eye. You know what we're talking about. And a camel was big. Okay? So so the image it basically it just you know what it's impossible. It's absurd. And just to say this out loud, man, I've heard these stories, Samuel. You know there were gates in the walls of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Well, there's this story. There there was one particular gate. It's like they had the big doors, but within the big doors they had these smaller doors that opened up. They were only big enough for a man. And, and they called that the eye of the needle. And so a man could walk through it, but it was hard for a camel to get through it. Okay, I just want you to know there was no such thing. And if you've been told that, and especially if you've been telling other people that, stop it. <laughs> it's just, it's not a thing. Just, it's an absurd image for your head, a big camel, a little needle, the little eye of the needle. Uh, and also... Now this one, I, I don't, I don't think it actually is a problem or, or like a a, a, a mix-up in the text. But I'm going to throw it out there just so you know about it. Apparently, if you, if you look at the Greek words between camel and rope, they're actually quite similar, and some have suggested 
hey, it's not really talking about a camel. It's only talking about rope. So where you might put thread through the eye of a needle, you're not going to put a big piece of rope. Well, that also makes sense. That's good imagery. It's, it's also impossible, right? We get all of that. Uh, but I don't think that's what happened. And part of the reason I believe it is because there are Jewish writings outside of the Bible that use stories with similar in imagery, and they use other large animals, even like elephants. So I, I think it's actually meant to be a camel. I think it's meant to be a very, very tiny eye of a needle. It's absurd. It's impossible. All of that. But now <laughs> the disciples' shock, it's actually increasing. So they've got this cognitive dissonance going on in their head, you know, their current thinking, how they think things work, and what Jesus is actually trying to tell them. He's trying to lead them to this conclusion. And, and in their head, it's like, if the rich aren't saved, then no one is. Mm. I mean, in their mind, this can't be. And, and you can see it in their question. Well, then who can be saved? So to them... This just seems impossible. It's a problem for now all of humanity. And the thing is, like in the context, what's Jesus talking about? We get attached to this world, and it's difficult to let go. And this is going to be true, whether it's for the rich or the poor. It doesn't matter. Okay, I don't know. Maybe it's a little less messy or a little less of a problem for the poor because they have so much less? Uh, maybe, maybe. But I don't know. I, and, and maybe it isn't just money. It could be another thing. I don't know. But it's true for all of us. And then it's kind of weird. Jesus, he seems to kind of go uh, go for the double entendre. He, he says, it is impossible for man, but not for God. And then the question is, Okay, which way does he mean that? Number one, he could mean that, hey, look, okay. a rich man can be saved with God or through God. For example, this is exactly what was being offered to this rich young man above. Or he could be saying that, you know what, any human can only be saved with or through God. And that's something more like, you guys are freaking out about this rich man being saved, but you need to understand that it's difficult that any human would be saved, and any and every human is only being saved because of the miraculous, loving, merciful work of God. So I hope I distinguish those two clearly. But it's kind of like we talked about, uh, I don't know if you remember, with the prodigal. If we make a sincere effort to repent and, and walk toward God, he, in so many ways, he spans that gap for us. We, I don't know, I guess we could say we aim for the impossible, and God makes it possible. Mm. Yeah, that's good. Um, I think I have been one of those people in the past who have hyper-focused on the rich person in this story thinking that uh, Jesus is somehow suggesting that there's not going to be very many rich people in the kingdom of God. I mean, you, you could you could place any other worldly attachment in this story uh, besides wealth and it would still apply like, you know, how difficult it will be for those who have addiction or prioritize their hobbies above their spouse or their relationship with God. I mean, I, I know it's, that sounds elementary, but Jesus is just focusing on wealth here because I, I think literarily it like this seems like the next thing that he would have said after having this interaction previously with the guy who went away disheartened because of his wealth. Um, yeah. It's like a, a continuing exposition on the interaction he just had. So, or m maybe another way I can say it in a generalized sense of what Jesus is saying is 
Um, instead of him saying how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, you could say how difficult it will be for those who prioritize their own will above God's to enter the kingdom of God. Yep. There's the garden story. Yeah. One more time. Yeah. I also wanted to just piggyback a little bit with your statement previously about the gate thing, uh, people using that as some type of cultural connection. The reason that Paul is like adamant that that needs to be stopped like as a form of teaching is that there's no archaeological evidence or textual evidence that that gate ever existed within Jerusalem. So, right. um, and it's funny because like while you were going through this section, I just did a quick search and rabbinically the phrase eye of the needle is, is found within other texts like the Talmud and the Midrash. So that like, to me, that's just another ref- reference to show that Jesus is using a rabbinic tool a rabbinic right. practice to drive home a a deeper point. Like just for example, this will take just a second. Um, there's a midrash on the Song of Songs, um, and it's uh, the midrash is talking about God's willingness beyond comprehension to be able to accomplish salvation for a sinner. And this is what it says using that phrase: "The Holy One said." Open for me a door as big as a needle's eye, and I will open for you a door through which may enter tents and camels. So Uh that's that's really cool. That's super cool. Yeah. I like it. So, yeah, it's, I don't know. These are are such great stories. And, and again, I think the importance that, that we're pulling away from that last bit is that, hey, you know, context, definitely all about riches and wealth and whatever. We get that. But if you don't see a little past that to understand that this this works for all of us and it's the things of this world, then you're kind of missing out. It's important. And now here we're going to see, we're going to see this next bit. Peter kind of kind of start to to understand what's going on, but there's still confusion and wonder or whatever. Let me read some stuff. So we're in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 to 30, Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, Luke chapter 18, verses 28 to 30. I'm going to read all of Mark and a bit from Matthew. So here's Mark. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is No one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, in Matthew, he adds this weird little bit. It's in uh, 1928. He says this, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. So, uh, Peter, you know, he's getting in on this whole thing, and he's like, well, I mean, you know, we we left everything. We, we, you know, you told the, the rich young man to, to get rid of everything and give to the poor. Well, you know, we gave up everything that we had. What's for us? Again, it's kind of like Jesus, uh, Peter's sort of, getting a hold of what Jesus is saying, and and he seems to be, you know, uh, sort of following the interpretation that says that the saving of the rich man is the thing that is possible with God. Okay, good, fits the context. But he points out their current circumstance, and he says, basically, we have become poor, or maybe we would say poorer, 
And how do they do that? By following Jesus. So if God can do that for the rich man, well, then what will we have? Now, it's easy to look back at Peter and think, oh, he's getting a little self-centered right here in this moment, right? Or, or you might even think, well, oh, that Peter, he's so dumb, he just doesn't get what Jesus is saying. Well, okay, remember, Jesus is shocking them with this statement. He's really turning their thinking upside down. And it doesn't matter that their thinking was obviously wrong, even scripturally wrong, whatever. I mean, you know what this is like. They thought they understood something, so they thought they were right. And it's it's hard to overcome that internal thought bias. It's like it has a momentum of its own. It's hard to overcome that. Peter, he's just the one who's bold enough to point out something that, you know, it appears to be obvious in light of this new reoriented thinking. So again, you know, got to give Peter credit. He's bold, but you know, he, he he's, he's, he's getting it. Now, you may look at Peter. I don't know. You may think he's a genius or you may think he's adult. I don't know. But Jesus responds in a very encouraging manner. He tells them, exactly what they're going to have. They're going to have a hundredfold of whatever they've given up. And they're not only going to have it in this life, that would be like the now, if you want to look at it that way, but they're also going to have it in the age to come. Now, the way it's written, you might think world to come, or you might think kingdom, whatever. But seriously, don't take this too literally. I mean, just as an example, do you want a hundred, you know, parents or sisters or brothers or, you know what I'm saying? It's not literal, but that increase could take many forms and maybe other individuals, you know, and this is easy for us to relate to it. They're like a sister to me. They're like a brother to me. They're like a parent, a father. You know what I'm saying? So there's that kind of thing. The point is, they will have eternal life. And Matthew even adds that they're going to have these 12 thrones. They're going to be judging the 12 tribes during the kingdom. Now, also I want to say this. We're not talking about judgment day. That judging, that's in God's hands. This is judging the way we see it in the nation or the kingdom of Israel as it has been throughout its history. They're administering justice, ruling, decisions, etc. So so aside from the 12 thrones part, okay, all that other stuff that he was talking about, I would like to suggest this isn't even limited to the apostles. It's for anyone and everyone who would give up the things of this world for the sake of the kingdom. And I'm going to explain that a little more. Let me get there. Uh, Mark adds a special phrase. I I want to talk about this real quick. It it is so consistently translated as something like what I read. They're going to have all these good things, and then it says, with persecutions. Now, I'm not saying that that is not the absolute best translation. It may be. It may be. And if it's true, it stands as this great reminder that our Christian walk, you know what? It isn't all sunshine and roses. I I have no problem with that as a translation or interpretation. I don't. But at the same time, when I read it, and Samuel, tell me how you feel about this. When I'm reading that whole list and you get to that one little bit about with persecutions, doesn't it just feel odd? Yeah, it sounds like someone was reading off the ingredients to a recipe, just like flour, eggs, sugar, rat poison, milk. (laughs) Right. When you hear that, you're like, that doesn't seem like it should be in that list. Yeah, yeah, it's really weird. And here's what I would like to suggest. Again, I'm not saying that that translates, it's good, it's good. But I'm saying it doesn't have to be translated that way. The idea being conveyed in that word is the idea of pursuit or following. 
And so it could just as easily be saying, hey, here's all these good things that you might have. And then it adds, you know, with faithful and loyal pursuit of God and his ways. Or, hey, you could have all these good things with or through those who faithfully and loyally pursue God and his ways because of your testimony. So it could be kind of personalized or how others respond to the message or whatever. And again, I'm not saying that it has to be read this way, but I actually think there is real value in this alternate interpretation. It's, it isn't like you're going to have all these good things, oh, plus you're going to have trouble. It's like, no, you're going to have all these good things through faithful and loyal pursuit, your own and those who actually hear your testimony, this gospel message. So I just, I want to throw that in because I think it's kind of a neat alter interpretation. Do with it what you will. But then Jesus adds right at the end this little bit about the first and last. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Okay, that too, I don't know, just kind of seems weird in this place. What is it? What is he communicating through it? Well, we've seen statements like this before, and and I mean, okay, like think of one. Uh, if if you would be first, or if you want to be first, then you need to become last and servant of all. We've talked about this a lot. First and the last, uh, the kingdoms upside down, all that thing. So here, it seems to be logically associated with you know rich and poor. And, and I mean, it would be very understandable to see the first and last as some sort of status like this, okay? Many who are rich, well, they might barely get in, so, you know, they get this low status, but many who are poor, you never know, they might be leading the parade through the gates of the kingdom. They've got this high status, okay? Again, it's that image of the upside-down kingdom. And Again, I don't think there's anything bad or wrong about that kind of interpretation, and I don't even think that it's not that. I'm just saying it's not all that or only that. I think that Jesus is actually communicating a something additional here. See, Jesus, he's going to go into another parable. We're not going to get to that today. And that parable is going to better explain the kingdom and this idea of first and last, and it's not going to fit necessarily with what we've already talked about. In this instance, we're going to see that he's highlighting highlighting the equality of all who enter the kingdom. And so when we see this phrase, you know, the first will be last and the last first, we think of it as a, a switch-o, change-o, an upside-down kind of thing. But with the parable that follows, the phrase seems to take on a different meaning where the first and the last are equal. They are the same. To say that the first will be last and the last will be first is to say that they will be equal. So it's just interesting. Again, I I like the upside down version of it, but this parable that follows is going to change things, but we're going to have to wait and see what he means. We'll talk about that on the next episode. Samuel, take us out with your many, many questions or comments or whatever. I actually don't have any other than leave it to us to end with another cliffhanger. It is a skill, and we are the champions, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> All right, well then, if you don't have anything, I don't have anything, we're done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okiedokimost.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com and until next time we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed 
rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.